A new era is unraveling before us, and conversation, data, and action are our only hope. Join us to learn together about the future of cities and how entrepreneurs are approaching our present-day challenges. The goal of this podcast is to unite real estate lovers, technology adopters, environment enthusiasts, and creative thinkers that are working toward achieving greater and fair collaboration for all. Come sit with us and discover how investing in these key initiatives improves our built environment, the public discourse, and climate change. We examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. Today on Tangent, we have the opportunity to talk to and learn from Dr. Josh Harris, real estate professor at St. John's University in New York and vice president of strategy at Skanska USA, a leading urban developer of high-rise office, multifamily, and mixed-use projects nationwide. Josh and I go back to our NYU Shack days, and every time I watched him present, I always left with a nugget or two of knowledge, so I'm confident this won't be the exception. Hi, Dr. Josh. Where does this podcast find you? Edward, I am broadcasting live from my base, my walkout basement office in uh, New Rochelle, New York, in Westchester County, just north of the great city of New York. Glad to hear. Sounds like uh, suburbia has been really attracting a lot of the former city dwellers, including myself. You know, I, I was, I've been here for a couple of years, and I, I can't say I've ever been happier to be a suburban dweller and never felt more probably uh, righteous in my choice of housing location and housing investment than, than in the last couple of months. One step ahead, as uh, you also uh, proved in your uh, essay, which uh, we're going to talk about in just a second. Back in April, in the early weeks of the pandemic, Josh, you wrote a paper titled Anti-Fragile Survivors and the Role of Extreme Events based on the great Nassim Nicholas Taleb's Anti-Fragile Framework. I found it fascinating how you roughly predicted many of the reactions and outcomes we're, we're seeing unfold today. What the real estate asset classes do you see as the most anti-fragile coming out of this crisis? And would you mind giving us your brief definition of anti-fragile to uh, get everyone up to speed? Sure. And I think you know, the concept of anti, anti-fragility or being anti-fragile, anti-fragilism, you know, it, it's easier to understand sort of what obviously being fragile or even resilient or robust is. So if you think about something that is fragile, right, you can think about, you know, a box that says fragile on it, right? If you kick that box, uh, the contents inside break or are damaged and in irrevocably so by that event, right? In order to require, they're going to require some effort to fix, put back up, if they can be. Um, resilient or robust, which is kind of what I think most people usually think about as the alternative to fragile, means it can't be broken, right? You know, you can take that glass, throw it on the ground, but it's plastic. It just maintains its shape. Nothing happens to it. Pick it right back up and go. So I think a lot of people think about you either fragile or essentially resilient, robust. But one of the things, and this was actually Nassim Taleb's sort of observation in the book that there's actually events, people, organizations, systems that are actually anti-fragile in the sense that you throw them on the ground, kick them, and they come up stronger, better, and more functional than they were, you know, after the some recovery process. So the easiest way to think, I think one of the best examples to get people to really understand it, if you think about working out and muscle building, right? I mean, that's an anti-fragile response. You're when you're working out, certainly with weightlifting, right? You're basically tearing your muscles. You're literally damaging them. Mm -hmm. But the process of putting them back together makes them stronger, bigger, et cetera, right? And it makes you effectively healthier. So 
anti-fragile is sort of the concept that there are certain items that are going to be made better by extreme events. And that's really what my essay was about, the fact that, you know, we're, the world is sort of collectively going through some bad times, right? I mean, a, a pandemic is kind of at the top list of kind of an extreme event that the world's ever been shaped off of. And you can think about certainly the, the you know, the Black Death, which is, you know, right preceded the Renaissance period and even the 1812 Spanish flu pandemic, right? These items are, are somewhat history defining in their own respect. And I mean, obviously, you know, a bad event or an extreme event doesn't have to be all encompassing like a pandemic or a war or, or even a financial crisis like in 08. It could be personal, it could be, a, it could be a divorce, it could be a loss of a job, it could be uh, getting into a car crash. So the whole thing that in my concept is that, you know, with, with these events individually and to individual organizations, there are going to be some, they're going to be fragile. Be, and literally the most fragile in a pandemic are those that actually die, right? Who literally, unfortunately, succumb to the virus or mm -hmm. um, some results in events like, you know, unfortunately, we're going to have deaths of despair, suicide, drug overdoses, right? We're seeing some of that. So that those are the, the most fragile. There's also people that probably economically that are going to get damaged that just will never really be as good. And unfortunately, I think a lot of, you know, I, I feel, I really feel for like restaurateurs and some of the retailers that they, you know, they're going to lose their restaurant or lose their shop and they may, may never come back or some people might lose a job and just will never get as good one back. I mean, that, that's unfortunately going to happen. And, and unfortunately we're seeing that and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better or it's certainly going to continue before it all turns around. Um, but there's a lot of people that are like, I think the bulk and the majority are going to be very resilient or robust. Maybe they get sick, but don't really have any big outcomes. They don't really lose their job. They're just, you know, you know, we, we shifted to like work from home, as you're seeing, right? I, mean, I use this as this was kind of before I joined Scanska and I was still at NYU. This was my consulting office. You know, it definitely it wasn't planned, mm -hmm. but hopefully we continue through. So most people probably end up being more resilient in that regards. There will be some, and I'm hoping lots, but we'll find out that will be anti-fragile that literally they will in the long run be better off for going through these extreme events they will learn something about themselves they will do something create something become something that they wouldn't have had they not experienced this and for some of them it'll be because they went through a really bad experience like a job loss or a business loss and if you look at the history of the the world not just the country i mean literally going back eons it is these large negative events, sometimes called black swans, another phrase that Taleb has written a whole book on, mm -hmm. that actually precipitated the changes that built some of the biggest structures, institutions, even um, inventions that really, you can almost hang your hat that if it wasn't for that black swan, it would have happened. And Taleb actually went so far in his black swan book to say, if it, it's the black swans that completely define our lives and our world, which is kind of a crazy statement, but... Mm -hmm. I can't argue it. And, and I think that if you're going to be facing them, and this is sort of the point of my essay was, we're going to face them, right? Th these bad things are going to happen. They, they've always happened. They're going to keep happening. I'm sorry to tell you, this is not the last thing, even if it's something different from a pandemic, right? 9-11 was a big one. It was a terrorist attack, right? We don't, we don't know what they are. The better you're mentally set up, the better you're able to address them, uh, the more likely you are to actually be anti-fragile and come out better. And, you know, I mean, I actually, robust and resilient a lot of if i had to give advice you plan to be robust and resilient i mean you can't necessarily plan to be anti-fragile it'd be nice if that were true but if you set yourself up to be strong and resilient well there's a good chance you'll have a shot with some maybe some risk taking some unique moves that you will have an anti-fragile response i think you're you're spot on necessity is the mother of all invention and 
uh, something that we've also seen now and, and realized is that COVID is not going to change too many of the trends that we were already seeing unfold before COVID, right? I mean, retail was already getting hammered by e-commerce since before COVID uh, with uh, high rents on retail corridors and Amazon just taking over. Office did take a massive hit now with the remote work revolution, which uh, we're going to talk uh, in a little bit. But uh, yeah, I only read uh, this week that the CMVS values, values, including hotels and malls, are down 27% nationwide, according to uh, the Financial Times. So uh, yeah, I think we're seeing these, uh, the different real estate asset classes also kind of behave in a fragile or anti-fragile way. It's certainly going to be interesting to see this uh, play out. I'm glad we're touching on this because uh, I want us to talk about the future of colleges and student housing. You know, Dr. Josh, besides having a PhD in finance from the University of Central Florida, you also served as the academic director and professor of real estate at NYU Shack, and currently as an adjunct assistant professor of real estate and finance at St. John's University in New York City. How do you see the pandemic affecting higher education, student housing, and the economies of college towns? Boy, that's a big question and it's a scary one. I, I, I talk probably, you know, every week or two with some of my friends down at UCF and then send it NYU. And I'm I'm in a, you know, I'm in a I'm in a network of um, a community of real estate and some finance professors that you know, we're a small knit, a couple hundred people probably that meet at conferences that obviously got the big one got canceled this year because of COVID. I've heard stories about furloughs, um, a lot like a lot of hiring freezes. That was kind of an immediate one. Um, I've heard some real dire stories from, from the university workers. In fact, I saw in a Facebook group for parents at UCF and they were posting a story from the University of Florida about how they're, the board the, the board of trustees has approved a, a potential um, furlough policy. They, they went through so far without, but you know, state and local budgets are uh, the hit. So I think that some of the schools are very dependent on state and local budgets. Are, are, they're in for at least short-term pain. Um, frankly, a big determinant of what's gonna happen, this, this all magnifies out to what happens to the, the college towns, to the student housing, et cetera. If there is a large federal stimulus bill that sort of re-infuses the, the cash or the, the coffers of the state and locals that do provide a significant form of funding for a lot of public schools, if that happens, they could all be okay. That's what happened in 08. Most of the schools were okay because of, there was a stimulus bill that got passed in, um, in 2009 that basically solved the problems and the economy recovered and, and they moved on. Um, Online education, I taught my, my St. John's course was suddenly an online course all overnight. It was not a seamless experience. Actually, my biggest problem was the students were, um, had hard, they had a lot of bandwidth problems. They had, they had connectivity. I, you know, I was okay. The students were just, they were also somewhat blown apart by the whole pandemic. So I don't, I don't want to take that experience, but you know, online education is, I think your, I think your question, if I want to really distill it is, will online education destroy colleges, right? I think that's somewhat what you were alluding to. Um, it's a, it opens it up. I think that there will be some technological shift. I, I do think that there is a um, there's an entrepreneurial aim here, and that entrepreneurial aim could be done by by colleges themselves. I'm not going to suggest that it's like people think Amazon's going to the university. People don't want to go to Amazon. You sorry, Jeff Bezos. You're I don't really know that you're going to win that one. Now you might Amazon might create the uh, infrastructure like the the, the platform that. Um, the St. John's, the NYU's, the UCF's, or any of these other schools, Harvard even might plug into. So you're a Harvard degree delivered by Amazon. I could, I guess I could see that. But um, people go to college. Let me just, I've been a college professor for a long time. They go to college to go to college. They don't go to class. 
I mean, NYU was pretty good because it was a grad school and people are paying a lot. You're going to come to class at a grad school. Undergrads, they don't go to class, not at the big state school. They go to meet each other. They go to they go to meet significant others that temporarily for an evening or for a lifetime. They they go for partying. They go for worldly experiences. Um, I think the students more than anybody. I think if there's any group that's probably more despairing and more desperate or, or feeling worse, it's probably the, the the freshman or sophomore who's having this best time of their life robbed from them. Um, especially if they're trying to get charged tuition as if they're going through it. So. Look, in fact, this is what now you mentioned student housing. Um, these statistics are probably still a bit being con- congealed for the for the year. Student housing seems to be doing okay, in part because universities went out and rented a bunch of it because they want they had to de-densify their dorms for social distancing. So um, for the students that don't come to campus, the college rented it. There's a lot of people that are going away to college, living in the student housing complex or even in a dorm, who are taking 100% online classes. Um, <laughs> And if you notice, we've seen some problems with them partying and giving the virus to each other. Thankfully, they don't seem to be dying, which is the, the good news. So I don't. I guess I feel like the college experience is so desirous and such a big part of young people's lives and somewhat of a life-defining thing, be it sororities and fraternities or sports or, or just even you know book club or the eclectic things that we all do. I can't imagine people stopping to do that because it can go online. Um, I think more online education is going to come. I, I think that it was on, that was another trend. So I don't, you know, the, the college towns, I I think it depends on the school you're in. I mean, frankly, some schools, um, I'm not going to, I don't want to sugarcoat this. There are probably some small colleges, especially some of the more private liberal arts schools that are expensive, that, that, that they've been, which have been losing enrollment besides before COVID, that, that they aren't going to survive. I mean, there will be colleges that are going to close and there've already been some um, declarations of what they call financial exigency, which is kind of like an equivalency to a bankruptcy. Um, this allows colleges to fire their tenured faculty is, is why they make this declaration. It's, it's, a, it's a broad thing. Um, you might see some, you see some colleges merging with each other in, in so many ways, right? I mean, then campuses that get closed or whatever, that, that, that's going to happen. Um, the, the, the schools that that happens are the ones you've never really heard of unless you went there. The, the big schools, the, the large ones, certainly the metropolitan schools, I don't think much risk. So you know, I, I guess I, I feel like people still want to go to college and I don't see that changing. But yeah, I mean, we might we might have we might have too many small colleges like, you know, it's one industry. If you think of college as an industry, it hasn't really consolidated. Um, banks consolidated. A bunch of industries have consolidated over the years with technology. Education, by and large, has not had a consolidation move, um, despite for the fact that you have some schools getting very large, like UCF doubled. I mean, it's like the largest school in, in, and it was like founded in the 50s. I mean, it's just some of that's because Orlando grew Florida. It's a story of Florida's growth. I, I do think there's going to be some consolidation and that's going to create winners and losers. I mean, honestly, you know, winners. Definitely, definitely. I mean, higher education is, is just ripe for disruption. Uh, the low acceptance rates that some of the top universities brag about for some reason and the ever-increasing tuition costs have really made uh, a lot of students uh, feel like college is, is a financial burden instead of uh, the investment that is supposed to be, right? Yeah, I mean, at the beginning of the year, my investment group and I were looking to invest in student housing and create a portfolio of off-campus properties. And, you know, after we mapped out the college town's corridors across the Northeast and we were really ready to pull the trigger, COVID hit. And, I mean, up until this recession, student housing wasn't considered a, a niche of multifamily anymore. The asset class had its own 
seat in the investors, uh, you know, residential roundtables, if you will. Uh, sad to say, I I don't see how many of these college towns where all jobs uh, are directly or indirectly connected to students living and spending on campus uh, will survive another semester, another year without without students. But I think your point to to consolidating and merging and taking advantage of more uh, you know, of the, the technological advances that we have, uh, then we might be able to reinvent the college experience. Uh, let's talk about uh, just this combination of physical and digital worlds that we're seeing uh, merging at an, Im at an imaginable pace. And COVID has accelerated a lot of these imminent trends we were seeing played out before as we established. We're exercising in front of a mirror, we're shopping everything online, we're searching for love, mostly online as well. So um, how can we take advantage of this merger of our physical and digital lives to improve the way we plan and develop our spaces going forward? Well, it's an easy question, guys. Um, I, you know, it, it's an, it's interesting. I, my first immediate observation to the people who talk about new normals or um, big shifts as a result of, of this or anything else is I, I countenance anybody to slow down after global financial crisis, after 9-11, those least of the two that I was alive for to remember, the number of predictions, certainly in the media or in kind of the pop business space that um, described how things were never going to get better or you know, like in 9-11, travel was going to end. Uh, high rises were going to end. People didn't want to be in a building over five stories. You know, that didn't happen. Um, interestingly, in the tech boom, because of the innovation where a lot of this, you know, right, we don't, I mean, today it works a lot better in part because we all have better wife, you know, better broadband and Wi-Fi connections at our, at our homes and offices. But this whole concept of video conferencing, you know, AT&T and Cisco, they all pioneered this stuff. And they actually suggested you don't have to have business meetings anymore. You can save travel costs. You know, conferences can go online. They had all these great predictions and business. And there were actually um, economists and, and sort of market prognosticators that said the travel, especially then when 9-11 happened and now people were, were afraid to travel, that this was going to be kind of the end of business travel. Well, guess what happened? Business travel, leisure travel, travel in general hit record highs in a matter of years. And I think the reality was and now even casual observers kind of figured this out. Well, wait a minute, if I can have a virtual meeting or a phone call, and and back then the big advantage was that long distance telephone charges ended. Some of your dare call it younger viewers, and by I mean like people maybe under thirty, may have no concept. There was actually a time when long distance phone calls cost money, like like twenty cents per minute, and cell phones ran out of minutes. Cell phones <laughs> like nights and weekends. Like wait a minute, let me can I call you after nine o'clock? That was a thing, right? I mean, and some of us you didn't even have cell phones until you were. I don't know, I actually had a job where you needed to have them because they were expensive. And now it's like, oh, a six-year-old, I mean, my, my, my four-year-old daughter plays with tablets and stuff like that. And um, that's a different world we're in. So because of that, we see each other. Now it's we see each other on Facebook, on Instagram, and all these things. We travel like crazy. Suddenly, you know, I think nowadays most decently okay to do, I'm not talking about rich, but just average kids find their way to make European trips on some summer in their college experience or whatever. Like going to Europe isn't even as big of a thing where it used to be maybe for our parents was like a culminative trip. Like hopefully on our 25th anniversary, we get to go to Europe for the first time. 
you know, we're traveling more than, more than ever. And I think this digital connectivity, we have friends, all of a sudden, I've got this friend that I know that I met online in Italy, I'll stay with them. And we now have Airbnb, we have all this. So the prediction was wrong, is what I'm gonna say. In 08, something similar has happened, what happened with housing. And these were more dire predictions, like the home ownership rate was gonna fall down to like below 60%. People were gonna, this whole generation of millennials that experienced this or watched this were never gonna buy a house. And um, home prices were going to take 50 years. I literally remember predictions, 50 years recovery. Guess what? They recovered to pretty much, not everywhere, some Florida, some of those hot markets took a lot longer. They basically recovered to their, their pre-global financial crisis pricing by about 2012. The home, average home size was supposed to go down, the, like of new construction. Guess what? Got bigger than ever by about 2013. Um, millennials, by the time they, they waited a bit longer, but they also waited longer to get married and they waited longer to have kids. Turns out that when millennials get married and have kids, they buy houses. And um, some of what we're seeing now, like we talked, we were joking about the, the move to Westchester. And I, I did this, you know, because I already had a kid a few years ago. I'm a bit older than, than that, than that average millennial set who was, you know, waiting. Guess what? I think a lot of their move outs are just because they were going to do it anyway. So why do I set that up? We're never going to work in an office. We're going to want to remain socially distanced. We're not like all these big changes that these we're never going to do this again because of COVID. I just put a lot of con I would just put a lot of calm and consciousness to say, don't things that are inherently human and humanly driven don't change that fast. We want to see each other. We want to shake hands with each other. We want to travel. We definitely want to be within less than six feet of proximity. Will we use the infrastructure and systems we develop and learning? Absolutely. But I, I'm very, I think it all works right now because we're in a little bit of a level of equality. That's true that we millennials are waiting longer to uh, get married, to settle down, to buy a house. I do think we do have some special, unique limitations in terms of acquisition power and how just wealth has been distributed or passed on uh, from generation to generation. So uh, I do think there's a lot of us that have been wanting to buy a house but have not been able to. But uh, that's, a, that's a different topic. On Tangent, instead of sponsored ads, we have Stimulus, where we dedicate a minute of airtime to amplify an entrepreneur building a business that's making a difference. The 2020 election is upon us, and American voters everywhere have a historic opportunity to shape how communities recover from our current crisis. This year, millennials and Gen Z comprise almost 40% of all voters. On the ballot, we will inevitably find a number of unfamiliar candidates running in crucial races impacting our cities and states. Finding quality education on these local candidates isn't trivial. To be prepared this year, I started by going to rockthevote.org. Rock the Vote is one of the most reliable and comprehensive nonpartisan nonprofits dedicated to growing the political power of young citizens, working to ensure our democracy represents the needs and voices of American youth. You can learn how to vote and get your peers involved making the improvements you want to see, all straight from your phone. Simply talking to a couple of friends about voting mobilizes civic engagement rapidly. Rock the Vote provides you with a digital volunteer opportunity and friends help friends exercise their right to vote. To read more, go to rockthevote.org. That's R-O-C-K-T-H-E-V-O-T-E dot org. If you are an entrepreneur or small business owner who would like to be featured in our stimulus section, email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. And now back with our friend of Tangent. Now uh, let's move on to discuss the different types of cities we have across the U.S. and all over the world. 
You've uh, consulted and advised real estate developers, REITs, private equity firms, as well as hospitality and local governments with your offices uh, in New York City and Orlando. These two cities represent the perfect contrast in American society and many places around the world. Do you think vertical cities have advantages over horizontal cities coming out of this crisis or vice versa? It's a great question. And I mean, you, you go vertical when you need to, like the choice to have multi-story elevator buildings or then structured parking or, you know, as a function of transit and infrastructure. So, so New York, which is the most vertical city in America, probably not in the world. I think Singapore, Tokyo, and maybe Hong Kong would, would buy for that title. But in, but in America, um, New York almost stands alone a little bit. I mean, San Francisco, Chicago, but, it, but after that, it's hard to really pick the next, everything else has that classic uh, CBD with a road ring system, maybe some transits to supplement it. So, you know, New York is a, New York's existence is a, is a matter of um, function as much as it is form. It wasn't so much that, boy, these high rises are cool, let's build them because they're really massively expensive and difficult to build and design. It was because you had no choice, right? I mean, New York City is a, is a really totally small island um, and you had to go vertical. Orlando, or any, which, which is a little bit more prototypical for the, um, the very classic, sometimes called secondary city, or you know, sort of um, smaller city, is, is this more classic in that it has a downtown node and it has roads. They have a very limited transit system of a uh, commuter train system that hits downtown a few stops. It's pretty, you know, it, it's useful for some, but not for most. Obviously, Orlando is even crazier because you have this crazy thing called Walt Disney World. Maybe you heard of it, but that's on the periphery of the city. And it actually, you know, I can speak as an old resident there. You just didn't interact with it unless you had to. Like, you know, that oh, that's part of the town. You just don't go there. And um, even though it drove a lot of the economy and a lot of employment. So I think that those decisions about, you know, I don't know that the pandemic, I guess my, my answer is I don't think it changes it. I think that I think that you're going to need to have elevators and density. Um, in the places you need it. I, I think people still, you know, right now, an elevator feels like a burden because stand six feet apart or wait your turn. I haven't even been back to the Empire State Building where my office for Skanska is. And I've seen the guidelines from um, you know Empire State Realty Trust that owns the building about that they supposedly have placed like the, 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 the footprints of where you're supposed to stand. You're supposed to go into the elevator and then face the wall or the door. Like you're, everyone's gonna be looking apart from each other so that you don't, you know, exchange potential air, which might have a virus in it. And that's not really very encouraging to want to take an elevator, go back to the office. Now, I think that'll end. I think everyone thinks at some point we're, we're just either going to give up, get vaccinated or get it. And one of the one way or the other, we, we go back out of it. So I guess I think that cities, I think that cities still will grow provided that they provide the advantages, right? Because it's it's a cost, you know, it's just like asking, do, do you want to pay extra for the deluxe version of something, right? Do, is it worth the cost to have it? So people find New York valuable to be there amongst the people. It's a knowledge center. It's the global headquarters of the world. I don't know that you can take the global headquarters of the world and distribute it all that easily. I think that you know, amalgamation effects and, all, and these sort of these forces that make these cities happen they do it for a reason, and I don't think you can just repeal some of those those basic functioning rules. Now, I do agree that I, I think that because of digital infrastructure, it's not as crazy to say I'm going to put a satellite office in an Orlando, in an Austin, 
in the Salt Lake City, um, provided there's a good airport. I'm a very big believer in airports as being the driver of, of city formation, city growth. So it, it's not so crazy to say we're going to put half the workforce in Charlotte, the other half in Manhattan. And we don't, you know, and I think like, I think Jamie Dimon's been on record with JP Morgan Chase a million times saying he wants to either go half the workforce to Florida or half it to Dallas and just, you know, sell off some of the buildings in Manhattan, right? And I think he's even a little bit of a political splat with uh, de Blasio over things. And Poisoned. <laughs> yeah, really, right? I, I do think that that is going to happen. Um, but that's nothing to do with COVID. I mean, th that actually, I, I do think that there's going to be no excuse to having to, we must meet physically to do something. I do think that we are, we know we can have a Zoom meeting or WebEx or whatever, you know, your system of choice. And that infrastructure is going to get better. I mean, I, I can tell you that the technology companies are, you know, this is a gold, there's going to be a, a gold rush into the um, facilitating work from home systems. There, you know, I whatever we have now is going to be good now. I mean, bandwidth limitations, technological, I mean, it, it's, you know, we joke, we were trying to get our audio figured out at the beginning, like, Everyone's being like this. We did our our company Scanska did our, our business unit's annual meeting, and we were doing it on virtually. And you know, it, it went really well. In fact, I mean, I think we all agreed we can do this. We don't have to wait just to see each other once a year. We can do this every month if we wanted to. But we still had technological problems, and we knew that was some of it avoidable. But I, I still think that the city question is more about cost benefit. I mean, that to me, and I think so long as cities provide the benefit that they that they have provided. I don't see why you won't see returns and, and or sort of desires. I mean, I don't think that you're, I don't think the average 18 year old that has a passionate desire to go have a big career in New York or live the New York lifestyle is going to give that up that fast and say, I'll just go buy a little white house with a picket fence or something like that. I mean, just skip over my urban exploration time in life. I'm currently listening to the book, The Great Indoors by Emily Anthes on the signs of how buildings shape our behavior, health and happening, happiness. And it's been uh, quite eye-opening to understand that notion that improving our physical and mental health and well-being is directly connected to how we design and develop the, the buildings and cities we inhabit. I think this is a great uh, segue to our next topic. And talking about the human species, uh, in your essay, you bring up uh, the survivorship effect, which due to the nature of COVID having high infectious rate but low mortality rate among younger populations means that many of us will consider ourselves survivors. Talk about how you see this saying, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, distorting our own preconceptions and how might this affect the potential for a faster economic recovery? It's, a, it's, a, it's an important point and there's a, there's a corollary statement that I, I probably wrote also is history is written by the winners. You know, and, and by the survivors and, and the survivors, literally. And, and there's a distorted element to this. In fact, one of the reasons I wanted to write the essay is actually I was I decided that in the missus I was going to reread um, and technically re-listen because I'm a big audiobook person. Um, several of Nassim Taleb's work uh, did Black Swan first and then Anti-Fragile. And uh, I still skin in the game, which is another great book of his um, a little bit more political, a little bit more political than than sort of personal is the last one. And. One of the things in, in Black Swan, he talks about war correspondence, and there, there was a book about World War II that he really liked because it was written uh, by journalists, and it basically was from their field notes that they were writing at the time. And you know, I know I learned about World War II history, and, and you did, Edward. Probably most most people our age, strictly from history books that were, hey, when was VE Day? When was VJ Day? Right? What was D Day? And you know, and obviously those were all successes. But you know, 
if you were in the middle of World War II, if you had, certainly if you were a soldier, but even if you were, just think about you were back at home, maybe you had a family member overseas, maybe you were just the, the average person in America during the time, you didn't know we were going to win, right? It wasn't so obvious. And, and the people who died, I mean, it's massive. And just, the, I mean, the, 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 the changes that this brought upon the world were, were just immense. And I mean, the horrors that people went through and you can't even tell it. And like at the time, it didn't, it, it probably seemed like one of the most insurmountable menaces. I mean, I don't know that every American walked down the street thinking, oh, this will be over. We're going to, you know, of course, of course, Hitler's going to lose. And, you know, we're going to, you know, Japan's going to surrender. I mean, of course. No, that wasn't how it was thought about. Um, so we go through these trials and tribulations. And th the reality is we get very distorted at the end of it. Now, there there is a crazy thing that is true that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. But you went through a selection criterion, right? I mean, you didn't die literally with a disease. And it, so there's a signaling effect. In economics, we always talk about signaling, right? And that's actually why sometimes, and I always joke, that's the real reason people go to NYU is because not that maybe you're going to learn a term. I mean, we hope you do. But by being able to say you're an NYU grad and have that certification. Social signaling, yeah. Social, but also, but, but even to employers, right? It says, well, that person got through NYU. Certified, um, get the certification. Maybe they're the one that kind of snuck through, but there's a better chance that that's a better person than someone who doesn't have a degree. So I'm more likely to give them a shot. That, that, that's what's happening. And that's why people want to come. So survivorship creates the same thing. And that, that once you've gone through it, you're a little bit hardened to it. Um, it showed that you were one that could survive. So that, that, that is kind of what we somewhat see. And I, I think that we, we, it leads to good and bad outcomes. A good outcome is that we are stronger and less afraid. I think this is what drives sort of the over, it drives almost an overconfidence response that actually lets us be anti-fragile. It says, you know what? I didn't get taken out by this. I'm better than this. I'm gonna go out there. It's, it's a bright new day. Let's open up that new business. I'm going to go for that new job. Let's go. It pushes us. Um, it also sometimes lets people feel like they got away with something when they, you know what? You could have died. Mm -hmm. You could have. And then that also leads to the overconfidence that lets us overbuild, go over crazy. We have bubbles like we did in 08. So it, it fuels both of it, you know, and, but, but I do, but I always realize that like before you think something is so great or bad, just realize that like if you got through it, you think of it a lot better than the people who succumbed or are damaged by it. And I think that um, it's, it's just healthy to have, it, it's healthy as an individual to have some respect for the dangers we play, but also confidence that, you know, we actually are very strong, you know, I mean, we are survivors. Like you're, you're born, you're, if you actually think about the genetic lottery you had to win to be alive today, I mean, the randomness of how your parents met and the fact that they, they chose or just happened to have you. I mean, there's just a million, a million life lotteries you had to go through to survive, to, to have air in your lungs. Somewhat defies the lies, the, 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 the actual rules of logic and probability. And, but it doesn't mean that you're forever lucky or, uh, I, you know, you're, it doesn't mean you're invincible. Mm -hmm. We, we are an anti-fragile species after all. We have but, to. uh, I mean, uh, I, I do think, uh, the way we learn about history, the way history is taught, it does give us the sense that human progress has always followed this uh, straight line upwards. And, and I don't think that's the case now. I do think there's some periods, some years, some decades where where we do take, uh, you know, uh, a few steps backward. Uh, hopefully this is not one of them, but I uh, just wanted to make that uh, nuance distinction. Now on to the future of work, which uh, this should get a 
even more passionately. You bravely argued in your essay that the work from anywhere experiment seems to be working for the moment, but the real test for this model will come when we feel safe again to go back into the offices. And then once the FOMO effect kicks in, meaning the, the fear of missing out, that's when the distributed workforce will really be put to the test. Now, do you think remote work is just a phase we'll get over after a vaccine or effective treatment is available? It's too early to really know what the future brings. And, you know, I'd be, be loath to, to hang my hat too hard on any prediction one way or the other. Um, I wrote that, I think it was the very end of March, early April, if I remember the, the timeline right. I don't remember the exact publication date, but, you know, it was written. And if you read the document, there's a, this is caveat about how this was written between the hours of 9 p.m. and 12 p.m. kind of as a vent. It was kind of a venting thing of, I had to do, right? It was like an off work time and who knows how good my thought processes were and all that. And I haven't attempted to really go back and edit it with a you know a clear mind and full cup of coffee like you, you should. But I sensed it that this is, you know, because at, at the moment, at the writing it, a lot of CEOs and the, the news stories were about how, oh my God, we're so productive. We don't need to, you know, this is the best thing ever. And I'm like, <laughs> like, in fact, it was, there was an article I, I saw about the, the Morgan, the CEO Morgan Stanley writing about this enhanced productivity and, and, and sort of lamented, do we really need to go back to that big old ugly office that we have in Times Square? I'm not trying to insult their office, but you know, <laughs> if you've seen the Morgan Stanley building, it's a big office. It's not something you build today the same way. And, and, and God knows anybody who knows about working in, in New York City, I can't. I can't imagine a worse place to have to go daily in and out of the Times Square, literally like a mecha tourism destination. And, you know, and if you've never been to Times Square, go once. Maybe even during COVID, you could experience what it's like, but certainly in a regular time. And he made this statement about how maybe we don't have, this is great, maybe we don't have to, maybe we can really, you know, do this largely forever. And my reaction was, no, you can't. Like, first of all, the reason you're so productive is like Morgan Stanley, this large financial institution, March, April was a scary time. I can imagine every employee there, certainly in the financial, I mean, most companies everywhere, but certainly in a financial sector company, people are probably working like crazy because they're afraid, what if things get worse and they have to do massive layoffs? Did you, did you want to be the person who wasn't showing up at all the Zoom meetings or didn't seem to be uh, hitting send on the email with all your work product? I mean, so I, I think that people were literally burning themselves out. Um, I think I witnessed I, a little bit personally in what I saw in my own company and elsewhere. I think people were just, they didn't know what to do. They're shell shocked. What's going on? Um, a few months later, you started to see more companies reporting the evidence of, of digital fatigue and workout, right? There's some gains, not trying. Look, listen, I, I gained time not having to take Metro North in every day, or I got, for me, it was a lot of time on airplanes. Like I literally was standing at JFK when our company was put out the order not to travel anymore in early March. I had to get you know, Uber back home and like, okay. So now, fast forward, now there's all these articles about this isn't, you know, the lack of productivity, the lack of culture. Um, now, not because I think he was trying to one-up the Morgan Stanley CEO, but the C CEO of JP Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, he gets two mentions in one podcast, um, talked about, hey, we've actually studied it. We're losing productivity amongst especially the younger workers. He doesn't, he had this great phrase, we have a lack of creative combustion. And this was his justification for trying to recall the workers. And so he said, even the lack of productivity, I don't, God knows what software they did to prove this, was worse on Mondays and Fridays, like you know, extending the weekend. Um, and, and they're trying to use, they're trying to come back. So I, I feel that almost like in the time since I wrote that article, wrote that essay to today, I feel like I've been mostly proven right. Uh, Facebook, big media giant that basically has statements, you don't have to come back to the office until God knows when, maybe next year, maybe ever. 
Well, in that time, they've executed a major lease, took all of the uh, the Farley Post Office building in uh, New York City, which is right above the um, uh, you know above Penn Station. And they, and they also just bought a campus, the REI, a retailer that was abandoning a campus, a new campus they built in um, Bellevue, Washington. Uh, Facebook bought it to, to house their own employees. So the tech companies, by and large, are keeping and even expanding their footprints. So, and if anybody could pull this off, it's probably a tech company. You think anyway, but they, you've been, if you've ever been in a tech company's office, they love their offices. They, they, they pride themselves on this, the ability to run into each other and build stuff and like creating culture and dynamics. And I think like onboarding new employees, which there's been some weird horror stories around the world about like, you start your job and FedExing you a laptop and good luck, my friend. And like, how do you, um, I've seen some online postings on board, like on job type things where like, like, like we're students and, and early professionals talk and they write about like, Am I like going to get fired? I'm so nervous. I don't understand. Like, you know, I mean, I don't know if my managers even know my, I don't know if the manager knows my name. And, you know, I, I guess I feel like it's working right to the extent we think it's working. This is the, you said the FOMO thing I wrote about. Like my, my feeling of this was that we are, uh, our fear of missing out is that like right now you're online, I'm online. No one's in the office. No biggie. Do you want to be the person who's coming in on the screen via Zoom or WebEx while the other half the team or more is sitting in the office? Do you want to be the one who misses out on the random lunch with the boss because you're an hour away? I mean, I don't think that when we are allowed to be there that I think there's going to be real costs. There's going to be, I mean, I always like to give career advice to students in particular, right? That's something they've done for, for over a decade now. You want to be present. If you want to get promoted, you you know, if you want to learn the system, if you want to really show off and, and you, you kind of got to be I mean, showing up as job one. I'm not saying you can't do a great, like I I, will, I think I do great work from this office. I, 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 I did this before, but I need to see the people. I need to I see my team members. And like, that is something that if, if we thought this could work so great, I think we would have done this years ago. The technology existed. Dr. Harris, you look pretty comfortable over there. So we want to challenge you to share a professional or personal anecdote about an opinion perspective that you had that you have changed your mind about this year? Hmm. You know, biggest one that jumps to my head first, and this is not, it's not going to be terribly controversial if you were hoping I was going to throw something like that. Doesn't have to be. It was about travel. So before, before COVID, so much of my workplace identity, and this is even certainly with Skanska by the nature of our organization, because we are kind of a decentral, I'm in the corporate zone, we're decentralized, um, headquartered obviously in Europe, so that in offices across the country for that we develop in. Um, but even when I was with NYU you were doing consulting back and forth, I mean, I was, you know, I, I, I was maybe a personal element of my own definition was what was my status this year uh, with Delta? Um, and, you know, will I get kind of get to the airport time to spend some time in the lounge and the Sky Club or the Amex lounge. And, um, you know, there was a little bit of a road warrior effect and it, and it was somewhat defining. And not to say that it was success that like, you know, I would take trips just to take them. But I'll admit like two years ago, I wanted to make sure as I was more United loyalist that I retained whatever level I was at. So I coming back from Fort Lauderdale. So I purposely booked it as a leg that, that traded planes in Houston because I knew it would get me just enough over than if I took a direct flight from Fort Lauderdale to LaGuardia to come home. And that's so stupid. And like, you know, I, I think that the, the, the defining characteristic of being so busy um, for myself by by having to go do all these things, like I have to get to all these different conferences, like I'm just, I can't miss out, like the FOMO of going to a conference or going to a place, 
you know, I think a little bit of like, boy, boy, was I chasing some dumb status symbols, literally airline stand. Not that that was entirely why I did it, but I think that that's the biggest thing that like that that there was a slowdown effect. I mean, I think that the um, getting to spend more time with my family. Um, look, I you know, Metro North. I don't think I really enjoyed it, but I never really thought about it. But like, yeah, my commute back up to the you know my commute from the office to home is a flight of stairs, um, and. You know, I, I think I'm in the middle of teaching at St. John's and they're like, wow, this is so nice. Like I log off of, uh, of the online mm-hmm. class and I'm home as opposed to I got to get to that subway. And, you know, that's at the I was at the Asquith campus. So that, that six train that only shows up every so often to get the Grand Central. Oh, of course, I missed that one train. So 30 minutes to the next one. That slowdown of movement, of physical movement is something that like I first thought in March that, oh, God, I'm gonna, this is terrible. Like, that was going to be the thing I think I was going to miss. And it's like I'm now – I want to get back on the road and see people, and I want to be in an office, but I'm not looking forward to having to travel or as, as much as I – like, I, it's almost like that fever, no pun intended, has broken on me. I think that's that's my biggest personal observation. Very, very authentic and very real, and I identify with many of what you said, and I'm sure our listeners as well have felt uh, that uh, a weight – has been lifted and and again it goes back to to the FOMO we are social creatures by definition and you know the airlines had this gamification going on which might have a financial incentive to it but you know we we were were chasing in this social status that a lot of us realized that maybe they had its benefits but weren't actually making us that much happier probably the opposite last but not least uh what advice would you give to your 20 year old self if you were starting your career on commercial development or in real estate today i I think the advice would be to calm down a little bit and i was um or maybe it's a great i love that question i always have a hard time answering it in in any variety that comes in because if it wasn't for the failures and the weird u-turns or right or hard turns that i didn't plan i wouldn't have arrived at my destination right like I, in a weird way, the anti-fragile story is a bit of that thing in the sense that like, I, I think the biggest thing I'd probably want to tell myself is like, do take those risks and um, don't don't feel that, so I'm gonna, I think I actually, I think I follow the advice I would give, not to say I did everything perfect because I think I had some very nervous, you know, I mean, I, I think the, the advice I give to everybody is like, it's so easy to go read LinkedIn bios or resumes and CVs and like, you know, or biographies, right? Like the thing I sent you before this, you know, there's snippets of somebody, right? They don't, they don't show the, the trials and tribulations. They don't show the struggles. Like um, mm-hmm. the hero's journey. If you ever heard that whole thing about like how we all go through the monomyth, it's so true. Like you're going to go through trials. You're going to have low points. And I think it's just kind of like, not, there's no guarantee that you're going to win and be the triumphant hero at the end. But, but I think if you persist, if you just persist, that's what happens. And I think I would just tell myself, like, you're probably going to, you're going to be okay with the outcome 10 years from now. So don't worry as much about what happens on a given night and take some risk, go out there, you know, don't, 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 don't live in fear. I like uh, to end on a positive note there and uh, remind me of one of your, the titles of your last sections that how you learn to stop worrying and love disorder. And I think uh, this wraps it up quite well. Dr. Josh, where can our listeners find you? If they want to reach out probably linkedin is the easiest everyone find no one's ever had a problem finding me there so i think um and if um edward if you want to grab my link the link to my linkedin page i'm pretty sure we're connected there um feel free to put it in the description or, or in, the, in the notes we'll do that so our listeners can reach out if they have any questions 
Uh, Dr. Josh Harris, thank you once again for being with here with us today. Very interesting intellectual insights into the present and future uh, of our world and to learn from your experience as well. Thank you. My pleasure. It was a great discussion. That is it for today. This has been your Tangent host, Edward Cohen. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with a friend. Thanks for listening and remember, stay curious and always be learning.